in the plane. Oh, George, she's got it. <laughs> it took a long enough. All right. Well, hi. Uh, it's amazing that we're dressed almost exactly the same, although I have a Guayaveta and you have more of a, a younger man's shirt. Adidas. When I was in Nicaragua, all the priests and brothers wore Guayavetas. So I guess I'm oh, okay. Channeling my inner. Yeah, I recognize that as a Mexican style. <laughs> Hispanic style. Hispanic yeah. style. Well, um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about with you, Troy, is to explore this notion of archetypes and also explore what you and I always are just in, endlessly fascinated by which is this sense of um, the Jesus Christ event. Who was Jesus? What was this event? And then because of your background of uh, being a, a Christian spiritual director, how many years is it now or decades? Decades, yes. Uh, since the mid-80s. <laughs> okay. And I have a, I've always been interested in mystical Christianity. I grew up Catholic. Um, and have a master's in pastoral ministry from a Jesuit college, Boston College. And so um, this, this whole idea of the Christian notion of the perennial philosophy is endlessly fascinating for me. And uh, when I first was led to the Law of One material, um, one of the ways that I trusted it was this idea, even though maybe I didn't understand everything Obviously, the first go around, there's a lot of things that I just I couldn't grasp. Although I, there were subtle remembrances that were called up from the deeper mind that I, I, I could make sense. And it came to me in visions, not in words. Just it was almost the energy behind the words formulated visions that I could see puzzles, pieces coming together. Um, but there were certain things that uh, the source of the law of one who is Ra, uh, R-A, and they um, they would say certain things that were so absolutely Christian, uh, at least that was my bias that I heard, but not just conventional Christianity, it was Christianity of a fairly elevated and, and advanced understanding um, given by people, let's say, that I was attracted to, people like Thomas Merton, um, Cynthia Bergeau, Richard Rohr, some of the mystics, you know, Tehar de Chardin. These kinds of, uh, this, these authors of the mystical Christian universal vision, when they would talk about the, their understanding of Christianity, it would be so beautiful and heart-opening and so, seems so right to me. And then the way Ra would present some of their understanding of the metaphysics of the world, and it would be absolutely congruent, in some ways even word for word. Um, moreover, because I grew up in a liturgical denomination, Catholic, I always am attracted to the ritual. Uh, in, in the Mass, there's always an opening invocation, if you will, and there's a closing invocation go in peace to love and serve the Lord, or go in peace, uh, you, you know, go now in peace in the great love and joy of God. You know, it would be something along those lines, and it would be a dismissal, but it was always a closing of this 
earlier, it was a bookend to the opening chapter of a particular Mass. So that, again, when we listen to uh, Ra, or we read Ra, we talk about, uh, we greet you, or I greet you, in the love and in the light of the one infinite creator. Yes, that was beautiful. We communicate And, and he now. never failed. It was always yeah. that very loving opening. Yeah. I mean, it was almost as if they... they that was what they said and how our third density ears heard it. But I wonder if the metaphysics behind it was that was the tuning in the channel, the great narrow band channel that Rod talks about from sixth density to third density. That was an energetic configuration. Uh, and if they didn't say those things, this invocation, um, it, it wouldn't be secure. It wouldn't be a secure line, you know? And then they say, I am Ra, or we are Ra. We communicate now. Well, he also talked about putting on the magical personality. Yeah. And <clears throat> that wasn't, that's basically invocation. That's what an invocation does, is, it, is it's a sort of activating the higher self, or he called it putting on the magical personality. Perhaps you have a greater understanding of what that means. But for me, it's just like invoking and saying, hey, higher self, um, let's do this together, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so the higher realms, be it our, our own higher self or God and the Holy Spirit, must be invoked because they don't violate free will. And that was something else that impressed me about mm -hmm. the raw material was that he was very, very careful not to want to violate free will. And purposely kept things mysterious at times uh, so we wouldn't know too much because our not knowing is one of the things that gives us choices. Yeah, the law of confusion. Right. And third density, uh, the law of the first distortion, the law of free will, is uh, interpreted as the law of confusion. And it leads to transformation if we're listening to the if we are able to efficiently use the catalysts that come through i once uh heard a word from the lord uh, through my intuition strongly that this one person that i was very ambivalent about taking on as a patient back when i was doing psychiatry um I, I took this to the Lord, but should I take this person or not? Because she was going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. And it came like this. If you will treat her, I will bless you. And I was in spiritual direction and with my very lovely first spiritual director. And uh, she said, that's how God always does things. It's, it's, it's a permission kind of thing. Uh, it's, he never tells you what to do. It's it's always this protecting your free will, and yeah. that was the same way. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. You, you mentioned something earlier there, and I think it would be a good touchstone to build upon um, this this conversation because it's a complex and beautiful conversation that I want to have. Um, and it might be so complex and in-depth that this would be a part one of, of a series. I don't know how this is going to actually unfold, but uh, I have a good feeling about it. And that is, 
to speak about um, a lot of different things that seem to be coming together in a fountainhead um, might be in the society at large, but it's certainly happening inside me. Uh, and, and so I'm trying to synthesize. I don't originate a lot of novel ideas, but I do synthesize things and then pass it on to you and we walk together in our discernment. Um, and so this idea of archetypes, this idea of <clears throat> blending metaphysics, maybe even Christian metaphysics, with this sense of the law of one metaphysics and not finding them in any way opposite. Uh, maybe on the surface level, they, they, can, they can be scary opposite, let's say. But at the deeper levels, uh, I, don't, I don't find incongruities. I, I really find that it's... For me, I'm going to argue it's, it's one and the same thing uh, with a little twist in the Christian story. But one of the great teachings, I would say, of the law of one, if I were ever to, if I were ever asked, for example, what is the law of one and, um, and how is it different, say, from a lot of other new age out there? Because it is new age, if you will. I mean, it has all the elements of, what new age would be um, and for conventional christians it's it's a no-go usually unless you're led there and then you're often a person is often in a conundrum about how do you how does one measure this against one's own background especially if there's um f fear of getting it wrong you know and what i would say to that question if i were asked what is the law of one especially in, in light of new age I would say that it encompasses all of New Age elements with a specific emphasis that I don't find in many New Age writings. And what I do find in good Christian understanding. And that is being here in this material embodied world is not a problem it's it's it is uh, it's not to try to escape this flesh this world it's rather to learn how to engage with it more fully what what is presented with us right here and right now in these bodies with these senses because this is the one infinite creator experiencing itself this is the infinite glory right here in this world it doesn't exclude engaging with the other worlds or even subtle realms at all. But even subtle realms are done through our embodiment here in third density space-time in this particular plane of existence. And the Christian message at its core is that incarnation, uh, that there is an incarnate nature. The nature of manifestation is that God is incarnate here in this world. And that thingness is beautiful. It's sacred. It's the highest sacred out. It's sacred. Uh, and so I would say that the Law of One material is New Age, and it's radically um, espousing a, a kind of incarnational spirituality that um, preferences the present moment as it is manifested here. Our life situations are sacred. Um, it doesn't mean that we are to embrace bad things like, oh, this is great. Uh, but it is through the engagement with difficulty and also to, you know, to experience joy and, and delight 
It's to the engagement of these things that we ourselves, as the one infinite creator, experiencing ourselves as right now Troy and Doug, that we, we grow. And not only do we grow, but God in us and through us, as us, grows in learning about God's self. So it's, we're the sense organs of God, you know. But our experience here, too, our own senses are literally our own sense organs that we experience this manifestation. Well, can I uh, just read you something that I wrote, which I think you might have on your website. And we'll make this available um, on the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, The image, idea, and intuition of God as the ultimate one, or singularity, or the law of one, Mm -hmm. is foundational in both Christianity and Judaism. The Shema announces this fact in every Jewish service of worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The term monism was introduced in the 18th century by Christian von Wolfen in his work Logic in 1728 to designate types of philosophical thought in which the attempt was made to eliminate the dichotomy of body and mind and explain all phenomena by one unifying principle or as manifestations of a single substance. Mm -hmm. So the law of one is not new age in in the sense that it's, it was well predated the new age movement. Of course. It's uh, and philosophers and so forth were coming to uh, appreciate that that kind of thought and gave it this term monism and of course in our age the uh, the appreciation of quantum physics that tells us that all things are a unified field Mm -hmm. really at their foundation much more than they are individualized things further supports that uh, uh, monism if you would and uh, so there are some interesting there's some interesting philosophy Again, predating uh, raw and the law of one material, mm-hmm. right? That that invites Christians mm-hmm. to consider this without necessarily thinking of it as new age. Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. Uh, so there's two things again you have said, and I want to visit them. One is this idea of the third density self, which is you and I appealing to our higher self in and invoking our higher self in kind of a magical personality, as Ra calls it, in order to do work in third density space-time. There's an intention of us doing magic, magical work or good work, uh, in third density space-time, and we invoke, put on the higher self that works then in and through us. It's also us, but there's a subtle I-thou relationship too. and so that's one thing. And the other thing that you've said there is this idea of quantum physics, that there's, there is, I think Ra would call it the infinite possibilities, that there's just infinite possibilities, infinite potential possibilities. Um, but that possibilities co- can coalesce and become a, a particle. You know, we have the wave and particle duality. Mm-hmm. It becomes a particle and it is in the particleization of something, or that's the manifestation there in space-time, third density space-time. Incarnation. That, that's the 
incarnation. That's the incarnation. And it has its analog in time-space, you know, which mm-hmm. has its own particleization, maybe in more of its pristine form or its archetypal form. And then here's what I'm trying to, here's what I've been thinking about, is that it's not just a layer, let's say, of wave and then it's and then a particle, but it's every wave can have a particle and then a particle becomes can have another wave below it and then there's another particle below that and just layers of particles and waves and i think those are the sub 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 densities that happen every moment can be a sub density but let me give you an example of what i'm saying um let's say that a a person wants to become a, a person is a kid and has infinite thoughts of what I want to do, you know, uh, potential here. Okay, so that's a wave in a sense. And then at some point they begin to really feel like, I, I think I might want to be an architect. Uh, and so they're of the potentials, there is a, of the potential ideas and concepts, there emerges a particleization um, of all the different occupations, there emerges a concept called architect, and it, and it comes to a kind of particleization. But nevertheless, that's still a wave. I mean, it's still infinite in its... If you're an architect, you can draw a lot of things, and there's all kinds of different architects. Mm-hmm. But that it came to a probability or a, a new kind of crystallization is one thing. But now it opens up a whole new field of, of again, possibilities. What kind of architect? And so let's say they become uh, an industrial architect. I, I'm assuming those are the kind that make buildings. I'm just going to guess here. <laughs> but, okay, they want to become an industrial architect. They go to school to study that. And then maybe that person has an idea of wanting to build a building. So of all the infinite wave of possibilities of the type of buildings they can make, that's, that's a wave they conceive of one particular kind of building. So it still exists though in the, in, in the concepts, it's not manifested yet, but it's manifested in some way in time space in the astral because it becomes a seed form, you know, it crystallizes into a particular kind of building. Then the person has to make a blueprint of what they envision. Mm-hmm. So that's a, yet another layer of all the possibilities. It's yet another layer of creating a new particle you create into a sub 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 level now mm-hmm. of a blueprint but that's still not manifestation in space t- in space time because then you have to take that and then send it off to people or whatever and have them build it and then when it's built and finished that would be the crystallization of it but yet that still becomes another wave because once you have a building that is manifested in space-time and it's concrete, you know, it's brick, it's, it's here, brick and mortar, it is its own absolute crystallization. Mm-hmm. But it does not account for the different, its infinite possibilities now are open to all the experiences that other people, you and me, would witness and create by walking into and out of and what happens inside the building and all of that, that the building itself through experience and engagement, witnessing, you know, by other people, by other incarnated entities, create yet another layer of crystallization. 
so example, the Taj Mahal was probably envisioned before it was created. And then it was created. And sure, it was created as a holy temple. But when you and I ta say Taj Mahal, uh, it, it, evokes, it invokes something uh, of its own essence that was long in coming through the relationship of thousands and thousands of people entering and exiting. Okay. And how does that enhance your life, Doug? <laughs> because it makes me feel that every moment is is its own crystallization, but it's also a possibility. It opens up uh, other avenues, other directions to move on. And it helps me as a counselor, because I've been a counselor for 20 years. For, for example, if someone... Um, who has created a certain kind of crystallization in their life, a certain way to be stuck, let's say, you know, and, and that's why they're coming to counseling. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a way in which their, their wave collapse, their collapse of their wave is, is, is manifested as a, um, a quagmire in their life. Okay. Then they, they and I can analyze this wave, particular, this particularity, with some degree of objectivity and how it affects their life, and then realize that there's a whole new way that they can engage with that um, in a new way that opens up all kinds of possibilities that are much more functional. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they have the agency to do that once they can see it as its own particle. You know, I don't have to engage, I don't have to allow this particle to define me the, the way mm -hmm. the quagmire of my life is. I can choose different ways to act and that opens up a whole new possibility so that'd be one way okay um, the other way that's more relevant to our conversation here is the sense of the jesus christ event um as something that happened both at the micro level with the jesus the entity and the macro level which i'm going to argue here is something that um was a little bit like Jesus as representative, the, almost an archetype of humanity. Uh, so the, I think the biblical term for the human one, the archetypal one, would be the son of man. You know, because in the Bible you'll see the, the quote, mm -hmm. son of man everywhere. But that is biblical speech according to uh, Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau and other other. Um, theologians to say that this is the archetypal man yeah and that was a fairly common idea back then apparently they, the jews uh, mystical jews had judaism had the idea of the adam kadeban mm -hmm. the idea was that it was the primordial man okay what was behind that and of course paul loved that idea because yeah. he he referred to the first adam mm -hmm. and this and then jesus was the second adam yeah and so he, this was all archetypal reasoning that never made a lot of sense to me until I became an archetypal psychiatrist, psychologist, if yeah. you would, because I understood that these that these patterns had been placed in the universe with a kind of semi-autonomous, semi-independent existence. Yeah, and they 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 function, and they're there for us to use as resources or or not. Yeah. But they, they influence our growth and development along the way. Yep. And they uh, and if we can catch their energy, they empower us to uh, 
live a more enthusiastic and energized life. Um, and of course, the Jesus archetype, uh, that the archetype of his life, which is sort of a hero's journey, mm-hmm. it is very exciting, very empowering, and has inspired countless people through the ages mm-hmm. uh, to greater things and greater acts of sacrifice and greater act of self acts of self giving. And uh, yeah, uh, so it, it has an archetype. There's an archetypal reality that energizes human personality that exists in this realm that Jung called the collective unconscious. Yeah, now beautifully said. And I, I kind of feel like the Jesus Christ event was a way in which humanity through Jesus, the entity, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about what I mean by that, um, in, in, evokes, invokes the... Arch- the, the great ink, uh, the actual, if you will, the archetype of archetypes, the ink, this dying, in, in the name of transformation, a dying and a rising, or loss and renewal, or death and life, or um, as Ross says, the nature of manifestation is valued in the losing. Okay, uh, you might want to tell your listeners exactly what the shape of the anchor looks like, <laughs> yeah, and why why it is such an important symbol to you. Yeah, um, and before that, let me just circle back and tie off that one idea. And this idea is that uh, I think that in the Jesus Christ event, there was a way in which the logos itself, um, in the analog of let's say Troy invoking his magical personality and then doing work in third density. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus, the entity as the archetypal one, mm-hmm. um, which is a something that he approached in his life, moving into a singularity. And that singularity would have been to become a perfect archetype, the archetype of a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and the logos itself then coming into exactly upon the cross, which is its own kind of ink symbol, becoming, there was a, a union and a wanting uh, that happened upon that, so that from this logoic, cosmic power of the archetype of the ink, and I'll talk about that in a second, then Jesus, the third density entity at that time, uh, pronouncing, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, do ushered in a new change in humanity's collective consciousness. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. That's where I'm going. Okay. But to discuss, to talk about what the ink is, uh, Ra talks about <clears throat> that. And of course, in Egyptian pictograms, you're going to see the ink everywhere. That's a cross with a head on it. Yeah, it's, a, thing. it's a cross with a circle on it. Right. And what Ra says is that the ink is a circle that represents the... Uh, eternal or infinite, infinite um, potential um, or intelligent infinity, but anyway, some level of it, the circle uh, of the oneing of all um, potentiality, the Godhead, if you will, uh, wanting to experience itself. So you could say that the circle represents, just to make it very clear, white light, but 
white light wanting to experience itself can't because there's no hue in white light. It's just white, full of potential, full of all the colors. And so there's a way in which through the horizontal part of the ink, which goes from the top, the bottom of the circle down to, let's say, the ground, the horizontal part would be God as infinite creator wanting to experiencing itself. So you could almost picture a prism right at the bottom of the circle where God pours God's self, the white light, into this prism and then coming out as the seven colors, coming down, uh, manifesting itself. And so that is the horizontal. And then the vertical cross would be um, levels of transformation. So perhaps you could even say that the first ink of manifestation would be um, the circle with the crop with the horizontal line and then the I'm sorry the vertical line all the way down to the ground and the horizontal line you could say it almost is is completely perpendicular to the bottom of the vertical so it's 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 really kind of like a, a lollipop <laughs> and at the very bottom is this little bar okay because that could be first density and then over time there's a spiraling up, a twisting of almost like in corkscrew fashion of the horizontal going up. You started to describe a caduceus in your onk. Well, I think it's the same thing. Yeah, you're, you're right. The caduceus. And so you start to see this upward spiral of um, movement of the horizontal going up, up, up. And every turn upwards is... Uh, a higher level of manifestation, or if you want to put it on the micro level, uh, maybe when we're incarnated here as a baby, it would be again that lollipop with the horizontal piece at the very bottom. And then as we grow and learn, it's again spiraling up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what Ra's saying is that the very process of, it, of the spiraling up, if you will, the greater and greater transformation, the process of that transformation happens through dying to our former way of life, whatever that is, our former way of thinking, our former constructs, mm-hmm. to the point where we're broken. We, whatever was we were doing before doesn't work, whether conceptually or uh, emotionally. And then that is when we're in liminal space, and that allows something new to come in. And when we can live in that newness, uh, it can move us into a greater way of seeing ourselves in the world more more in line with let's say uh, non-dual or holistic seeing and so that spiral keeps moving up and up but it's always an upward movement through dying to ourselves which is the quote losing as Ra says Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that's the message of the cross uh, because I think when you see a picture of Jesus Christ crucified with the, um, uh, what do you call these things? Uh, the, uh, the, thorns. the thorns, the crown of thorns, or sometimes it's the halo. But regardless, mm-hmm. I, I would say then that the cross itself can represent the Legoic archetype of the ink coming into third density time space, not yet manifested. But then it took a Jesus entity to say yes to the mess to the mission of becoming an ink 
to an absolute undistorted level in third density, becoming the archetypal human through his life, mm -hmm. uh, through his own process of dying and to what you know, his own process of listening to God and sacrificing, and then merging Jesus crucified upon the cross is when you have those two together, you have the absolute cosmic power of the cosmic logos in third density now manifested, brought into space-time through Jesus's continual life, life's journey that led him on the cross. Let me address uh, the idea of, well, first of all, that spiraling upward yeah. is a very orthodox idea. Uh-huh, okay. Um, it is a called divinization or uh, theosis mm -hmm. in Orthodox Christianity, and the idea of becoming godlike uh, or like Jesus is a very Orthodox idea, and a bit unfamiliar to Western Christianity, but it's there if you're looking for it. Um, yeah, I just want to yeah, drop thank that you. in there. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, mm -hmm. and and so one of the things that I wanted to share with you and see what your thoughts are is <clears throat> why was the Jesus event necessary or why did it happen in, in third density? Like what was there a need to have this kind of cosmic logoic participation on one side of, you know, in time space, kind of a reaching in and then in space, time and third density, having an entity, Jesus became Jesus for us becoming so, approaching a singularity where he became the ink on this side. He became also you know, the human archetype, the, the human one. Why was this necessary? So that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about too, is in terms of the human collective consciousness, what do we know about human collective consciousness prior, in general, at least in the Western world? I'm not real familiar with the Eastern world, but what was going on in our collective consciousness um, at that time? It's complicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you have to look at the culture Jesus came up in, and that's the Jewish culture. And, uh, of course, they had this elaborate sacrificial system uh, where they sacrificed animals and wheat and barley and different things. But that was a step up from... Yeah, well, they came, they came, they came out of Canaanite culture uh -huh. in uh, Ur. Yeah. And uh, where there were other kinds of sacrifices, at least among the Canaanites, there was the passing of your children through the fire. Uh, so they were doing human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the idea of sacrifice seems to be an important part of humans longing for God or transcendence at least. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, even within our Jewish Christian tradition, uh, we, we see that urge when Abraham takes his son and he's, he's thoroughly convinced that he has been called by God to sacrifice his son. And this was the son that was very hard to get uh, he had several miracles happen mm -hmm. in order to get this son, uh, Isaac. And so now, now here he is 
probably a young man, and Abraham's going to sacrifice him? How horrifying is that? And uh, But yet that archetypal impulse was there in the heart of the human Abraham. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, might possibly inspired by the culture around him, but but the archetype was active, is my point. The pattern was there. Almost embodied perfectly because yeah. he was willing to do that. Right. Yeah. And so when archetypes become activated, they, they come forth with a godlike power. Yeah. They, they, they convince us that this must be God. It, it's, it's sort of like falling in love, you know? Mm. We, we fall in love and it seems so elevated and, and, and exciting and transcendent that this must be God. And how many young people do you know when in the teens and 20s, they sort of, in their enthusiasm, think God is leading them to get married or whatever. Mm. I've certainly known people like that. And mm. they just get led into horrible situations yeah, sometimes. Yeah, they can, yeah. My point is that archetypes ha- have an authority, a, a, yes. a self-affirming authority that, that, that convinces people this must be right. It creates change, too. Right. Yeah. And so... Uh, so if God's using the vehicle of archetypes mm-hmm. to call out to the souls of humans like Abraham, uh, when they first get activated, they're in a very raw and exaggerated form. Good point. Yeah, Almost and, always. Almost yeah. always, yes. And so if God is going to modify that, raw and exaggerated form of the archetype, he's got to do some magic, got to do some teaching, got to do some big things but, to move him to the next and, level. And to build on what you just said, though, you can't get to the next big thing, if whatever, if it's not at first manifested in its raw form. I mean, you uh, got to build a base. I think that's true. Yeah. And um, um, can I tell you my my story about my patient who had an archetype manifest. Oh, and how I think that would was. be wonderful. Please. Okay. <laughs> so I had I had a pastor's wife who I cared for uh, as a psychiatrist, and she had multiple personalities. And uh, she wasn't doing this when she first came. She just came for depression. But uh, uh, somewhere within the process of her going through her healings, uh, she began shoplifting. Mm-hmm. And that was that was distressing, and you know, she hadn't been caught yet, but she that was going to be be bad for her conservative church if if the pastor's wife got to, yeah not a good look <laughs> not a good look <laughs> right and but uh, did she know she was doing it or uh, it was almost as she if... would discover oh. stuff in her bag that she doesn't remember putting wow. there and figure out that. Something happened here, and and then she, we 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 then did our inner work and found a entity called Robot Man, okay. and this was a male. Uh-huh. And uh, again, you get manifestations like this of yeah. alter personalities in, in people with dissociative identity disorder, and so so uh, this uh, we invited this Robot Man out in a session and. 
said, uh, you know, what, what's this all about? And his, his idea was he was entitled to these things that he wanted because he had suffered so much. And she had suffered in the form of two, two depressed parents and a little bit of abuse, not from parents, but from other sources. And, but my point is, it was very entitled and very raw, just like this uh, thing in, inside of Abraham that said... You have to. You have, you have to go sacrifice and your son. And it is son. good that you do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, the the, uh, the robot man was entitled like that yes. in, in, in a very forceful way and, and would take over her personality and, and shoplift. So so I said, so I did some some things and um, we wanted to, him to express his anger because I wanted him to go through the grief process, get unstuck from, from this entitled uh, state of being. Okay. And... Be sad that he suffered, but not be stuck in this entitled shoplifting pattern. So I need to stop and ask you a question on that. So you're saying that you were trying to engage with the archetype itself. Well, I didn't, didn't know it was know an it was, archetype. Did, it was manifesting as an alter personality. Alter, so that's what you were thinking, right? which is very good. As a counselor, you want to be able to sure. help that part process. Sure. Okay, good. So, so I said, okay, uh, I had a... I had a Padded stool. I said, "Okay, hit, hit, hit the stool." And so I'm, I'm mad. I'm mad that I suffered. I'm mad that I suffered. And, mm. and but then he said, "Well, I want to hit you." <laughs> <laughs> Oops, that wasn't in the script. <laughs> that wasn't in the script. Oh. But I said, "Okay, you can hit my shoulder." And uh, and so they hit my shoulder, but didn't hit it one time. He just kept going after it. Wow. And uh, so I said, "Stop!" And he wouldn't stop. So I. I put the stool down and grabbed the uh, uh, wrists. Yeah, of the lady of, who's of channeling lady this and channeling this this uh, robot man. Yeah, personality thing. Uh -huh. And um, so at that point, she starts kicking me, and so I've got her by the wrists, but she's kicking me, and I say, "What do I do now?" And so I, I turned her around so as not to make it seem like there was anything sexual. Yeah. And I kind of forced her down to her knees. Uh -huh. And so I now had her by wrists and she was on her knees. Yeah. And I was in control. Yeah. And here's what Robot Man said. Oh boy. He said, you can't do this to me. I'm the most powerful force in the universe. You can't do this to me. I'm the most powerful force in the universe. Wow. That's archetype. That's an archetype. Yeah. And wow. that's how they think. They're, they are not in touch. Because they are the creator. I mean, it is the uh -huh. creator in a purified form, in some form of uh, astral template. Right, right. Yeah. Without the ability to process grief, it seems. Right. Yeah. So thankfully, through this processing, she no longer shoplifted. So that was a good thing. But, mm. but it was a real education to come face to face with that extreme of a statement on the part of this yeah. robot man. It's told me... It's basically what Jung described about archetypes, that, yeah. they, that they tend to be organized in, in two different extremes that are opposites. Yeah. So yeah. this would have been one, one of the opposites. It's almost like the extreme of the pendulum, whatever a pendulum swing is, when it reaches the either point at the highest level, then that would, that would be, an, that kind of would be an archetype. Right. And right. from that archetype, uh, there's a spectrum of um, 
expression, which is incarnated. That mm -hmm. expression is expressed in space-time in this realm, bandwidth of consciousness is their density by incarnate beings. But it, it's all coming from an original archetype. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. kind of, I almost think of it like, let's say, cards have 52 cards. Mm -hmm. And that could be an archetype of a game called cards. But then there's a hundred different kinds of games one can play with cards. So then there's a hundred different, let's say, archetypes from a master archetype called cards. Sure which is also one of millions of different archetypes in an archetype called games, you know, but it's still like, let's say you have the archetype of blackjack, blackjack, it exists as the rules. But then if you as an incarnate being here in me and we're playing blackjack, we're going to have an experience of that that is unique to us in that particular moment. Cause we could play blackjack next week and it would be a little bit of a different feel. It would be similar. But you uniquely experiencing it, this archetype, me uniquely experiencing this archetype is a way to uh, incarnate the archetype into space mm -hmm. time. And if God is incarnating the archetype of sacrifice into the human consciousness, yes, he's going to want it to grow, it to grow and not be so extreme. But it has to be incarnated at the extreme first in order for it to be refined. Right, and so yeah. and so Abraham start tries to incarnate it at the extreme because he's got this strong sense that he's being called to uh, to slay his son. Yeah, but then God provides a ram in its place, uh -huh. so he doesn't have to. So there's slay a movement from human sacrifice right. to animal sacrifice. Right. Right. Okay. And so this whole big system gets set up of animal sacrifice and and uh, crop sacrifice and different things, different ways to sacrifice. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, that is all part of the manifestation is what you're calling the Ankh yeah. uh, in a culture. Yes. But God, and you know, in the scriptures it says, when the time was right or at, at the at the right time, the fullness Christ of time. Came, yeah, yeah, the fullness of time, uh -huh. that's it. Christ died for our sins. Yeah. So um, it was time for the archetype to move ahead and uh -huh. manifest in a in a more mature, more uh, uh, loving yeah, and, and to piggyback on that, I think what happened in the Jesus Christ event, because I'm putting them two, the two together, is that there was not only a, a refinement to the, the archetype of sacrifice, mm -hmm. but it was a refinement that created its own new archetype that was a new um, unlocking. It was a turnkey to something that was happening to allow something new to happen because then people could um, could could then incarnate and be inspired and live into the power of that particular Jesus Christ archetype and incarnate the archetype in, through their lives. So as Jesus said, uh, you're going to do more than I did, but it's, it's coming from that same archetypal energy, I wonder, you know, but here's something I want to ask you. Um, and also, let me just say, too, that when Jesus is on doing this archetype and creating it, it's not just this idea of God needing to sacrifice his son. 
I think that misses the point because I don't think that's exactly, from my perspective, what happened. Uh, I'm not into atonement theology as often as talked in conventional circles, but I think that there was a lot of other things that were being shown to be to, that one can sacrifice. For example, sacrifice steadily moves from the most base area, which is maybe a people's, and then it went to a person, and then it went to animals, and then it went to crops. It's, there's a slow movement up. And I'm thinking a slow movement up the energy centers, wouldn't you say? Like the collective energy centers. Goodness, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm seeing, for example, the first two, or the first three energy centers of a human, or let's say a collective, mm -hmm. would be the, the survival, that's mm -hmm. the red, and then the orange energy center is sort of who am I, like self-identity, self-empowerment. And then the third energy center is who am I in community? Uh, but as a people, then it would be who are we as a, that would be the orange, who are we as a people? And then it's who are we as a people in the context of other peoples? Um, regardless. Is that the yellow then? What's that? That's the yellow. That the I'm yellow? sorry. Yes, the yellow, the third. Okay. Uh huh. And I think what's interesting here is we have a slow movement from. Uh, growth, human development that takes place on the micro and on the macro, that's slow. It's moving up the chakra, up the energy centers. That horizontal part of the ink is slowly uh, moving up and spiraling up the, the vertical downward as more and more understanding of what sacrifice means. Because the word sacrifice is coming from Latin. Sacra uh, means holy and Fice uh, comes from a Latin word mean, to mean to make. So the idea is to make holy. And what we know from Ra is the sacramental nature is starting to be understood and accepted at the level of the, um, the indigo center or the, the, the third eye mm -hmm. and also the, the violet center at the very top. That when one approaches that area, everything starts to, you can see... Everything feels sacred. Everything is sacred because everything is God, expressing itself mm -hmm. as God. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a slow movement. So to sacrifice is to make holy. And there was this sense that I have to lose something in order to gain something. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if when we have the Jesus Christ event on one level, you have this archetype of sacrifice being transmuted from what I would argue is a almost a stuck closed energy circuit loop in the first three chakras over and over and over again to finally opening it up into the heart, uh, holistic seeing, holistic embracing, holistic receiving. Well, sure, of course. Yeah. And that was the big, big deal about Jesus's message and uh, the kingdom of God is within you. Yeah. But, uh, so it moves sacrifice externally right. to, to an internal movement. Make, with, it, make it a part of your heart. Uh, yeah, it's not about keeping the law. It's about um, we use a lot of hyperbole to yeah. sometimes express that, but uh, it's about what's going on in your heart. That's that's what's important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here's one of the things that I wanted to throw at you too is this idea of <clears throat> sacrifice, as you talk about it, and there's a slow development of understanding that the archetype is incarnated. Let's say in, in in Abraham and with the sacrifice of his son. And then there we, we see an, a movement up 
with the, the lamb, the ram being put there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then the idea is that there's a slow progression all the way up to where Jesus, who is supposed to be the human one, uh, saying you must sacrifice yourself in order to... It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, sins of, of the world, world. Yeah, says John the Baptist. And I think it's not just that Jesus, it's basically the archetype mm-hmm. of a sacrifice embodied at that level will take away the sins of the world because sin is not something that you and I do that's, quote, evil or bad. Uh, as far as I can see, sin is uh, actions that I do that are based in the ethos of separation, where I see you and I as separate, and it furthers that ethos. It transmits that energy and furthers it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I'm doing something um, to somebody else in that, energy of my actions towards that person is seeing them as other than me and inferior to me in some way or or certainly other than Uh, and I do something that continues that starts an inertia of energy moving in one direction that will further the ethos of separation that's sin yeah and and the open heart is what reverses that. it does Mm -hmm. because what does Ra say Mm -hmm. the inertia of karma is stopped by forgiveness. forgiveness. It's the only thing for acceptance and forgiveness. So when we forgive, we again open our hearts. Um, we let go of our anger, feel our sorrow, pass on, and God resurrects uh, a willingness to open the heart again. Yeah, within us. So it, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is one way to say the archetype that is now embodied in space time, third density space-time that exists and was brought into manifestation through the Jesus Christ event is one in which you can tap um, through your own will and faith and seeking and then gain a, a magical uh, access, because archetypes, as you say, want to be <laughs> incarnated, uh, to be able to forgive us forgive us our our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us as, as the our, the Lord's prayer is is to forgive other people and that's a way to bring in something that did not seem to exist on the macro level until the Jesus Christ event um, now that again I'm sure that there were lots of ways to think about this in the Eastern world but I'm not sure if in a macro level we could see the sense of forgiving unconditionally uh, without a a need for the other person to um, to understand what was given there's an open forgiveness and that created an archetype that people could tap into because I think where I'm understanding raw um, is when you read between the lines in the material and I and I wrote an article about this called um, something about swept into the maelstrom Uh, the disclosure movement and this idea is that from the very beginning of human incarnation here at the beginning of third density space-time 75,000 years ago uh, up until the very moment human collective consciousness uh, as as a unit so we can call them Adam maybe we can call that Adam what is it Adam Cademon Cademon okay Adam (laughs) Cademon 
the human collective consciousness um, seems to have been for all this time and still is now maybe slowly waking up, but most of the time has been stuck in this lower chakra, the lower three of um, a quid pro quo or an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth or uh, revenge and repay, mm -hmm. you know, vengeance and then uh, revenge, you know? Yeah, or even as it related to God, because uh, uh, God needs sacrifice in order for me to be accepted. And so God's doing a eye for eye almost, isn't he? But Jesus moves us out of that into a kind of open-hearted forgiveness that doesn't, that's not, as you call it, quid pro quo. Yeah. It's a... Uh, it's just a freely given because it's good for me and it's good for God and it's good for for us all. And that doesn't mean we let people walk over us at all. Right. But it it's it's good for us to forgive. And I think it's the ultimate well, it's one of one way to express the ink in the in at the level energy of the heart as opposed to the lower chakras. Yeah, anger is uh, one of our most entitled Emotions. Yeah. Uh, just like that robot man story that mm -hmm. I told you. He was very entitled yeah. to shoplift. Yeah. Uh, I, I found that I get angry with my wife and so forth. If I'll analyze it and realize, well, what's the, what am I feeling entitled about? It helps me understand my uh -huh. anger. I'll realize, yeah, I'm not entitled to that. <laughs> and, and so I can let it go. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, I'm not entitled that she be different than she is. You know? <laughs> a, a, a little bit of a tangent on that too is we have a cat right now that's 12 years old and there's never been a very nice cat. Mm -hmm. And the cat's partner, if you will, um, the cat that we loved, died last year. And so since then, that cat is has gone more grumpy. And since then, we have a dog and another cat. So this mm -hmm. cat is just constantly hissing, angry. And about a month ago, I discovered has been peeing and pooping underneath the piano. And, and so this caused a lot of anger. <laughs> uh, and I was thinking about sacrificing the cat. <laughs> My wife and I were joking, like, what can we do here? You know, this is just terrible. And, and uh, lots and lots of trying to fix the situation, but the cat step, even on the sheets that I put would still pee and poo. And we were getting more thinking like, well, maybe we need to give this cat up for adoption. It's clearly not good for the cat, but I tried something. Now, I have no idea if this actually worked metaphysically, but I tried to invoke, because I was thinking about the topic that you and I are talking about now. And I thought, well, what if I were to invoke the, the Jesus Christ archetype of forgive them father for they know not what they do. Mm -hmm. And so I looked right at Piper, the cat's name, and she's looking at me like, you know, with, I don't know what she's thinking, but I'm going <laughs> to anthropomorphize her, but she wasn't looking at me with joy and love. <laughs> but I looked right at her and I said, uh, I for, you know, I said, forgive you, Piper, for you know not what you do. I forgive you for you know not what you do. And that was the last time she peed underneath that piano. Hmm. And that's that was a week and a half ago. She hasn't peed or pooed. Now she might have pooed because 
Sometimes the dog smacks the lips, but I'm not sure. But she hasn't peed, and that's, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Going back, though, to the collective conscious of the human archetype, the, the admin, uh, the Adam, the great Adam uh, representing the human collective. Um, for most of human history, we have had uh, a sense of scapegoating. Mm -hmm. And I am wondering if it seems to me the archetype of scapegoating dovetails with sacrifice, but I'm not sure if it's always the same thing. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, scapegoat obviously means the goat that was sacrificed, but there's a sense that we're scapegoating came because there was a sense that the priests were going to confer the sins of the people upon the goat and then either kill the goat or excommunicate the goat, you know, mm -hmm. e exile the goat to mm -hmm. die in a desert. And, and the idea here was, is that the goat carried the sins. Sure. Well, I've been blessed with a fairly forgiving conscience, but I've worked with lots of people who don't have very forgiving consciences. Mm -hmm. And uh, working in the prison, I've worked People who don't have consciousness is awful as well. Yeah. But um, my point is that people with non-forgiving consciences need a lot of help forgiving themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, so the uh, sending that goat out into the wilderness was a, was a great help, I'm sure. For, Ingenious, huh? For, yeah, for a lot that of time. people. Yeah. For a lot of people, and, and you know, it seems kind of primitive from our standpoint, mm -hmm. but it, you know, in psychotherapy, we, we do little rituals to, mm -hmm. to try to help people envision hidden realities or uh, invisible realities. And so, we'll, we'll, she'll write, write down all the angers, and then now we're going to burn that in the fire, yeah. you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And, uh, That's internal work, but right. it was happening externally right. in this way, and that and that helps people. Yeah, but I'm wondering if there was a distortion that happened, as Ra uses that word distortion with the scapegoating, because the other thing that seemed to happen through cultures um, and through people, and Rene Girard, maybe you've heard that that person, um, very very famous, I believe, anthropologist, French, and. He one time uh, in his literature stated that the, the scapegoat mechanism is the most widely uh, utilized, discovered um, uh, mechanism, social practice that is universal in almost every culture, mm -hmm. probably in every culture, every religion, every spirituality. People discover the scapegoat mechanism and live from that. Mm -hmm. uh, and you find it in every culture. And there's always a sense that um, those others over there are the problem. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, our problems that we're having are caused by that. And I, I'm trying to wrap my head around whether is this a distortion of the scapegoat as a sacrifice in the way that we're talking about, uh, but the way that scapegoating has become understood and maybe I think even back then in primitive times, let's say, is this idea of um, whatever is going on in us as a people or as me as a person, 
I'm less distorted than, and I'm a victim of what the agencies outside of me are trying to do to me. And I'm going to point my finger and project my own shadow on top of them and attack them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to be what G- what Ra talks about is an incredibly pervasive um, combination of anger and revenge and this quid pro quo mentality, which I call the warfare mentality, but Ra calls bellicosity. And bellicosity, from Ra's point of view, from Rene Girard's point of view, I think from the Christian point of view, and I'm assuming in the Buddhist point of view and other religions, is this idea that um, bellicosity is, there's the problem over there, and we must attack that with a sense of, I... It's not just the actions, but it's the sense... Righteous indignation. It's right. It is, I'm right, and you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And and in order for purity to exist, in order to, in the name of God, or in the name mm-hmm. of our gods, or in the name of goodness, I have to squash my enemies, kill them. Well, we saw that with the Jewish culture, in terms of when they came into the promised land, they, mm-hmm. they killed everybody. Yeah. And, uh, and that's scapegoating too. Yeah, that, I think that's a kind of scapegoating too. Yeah. Now, they said God told them to do it. Right. Uh, I don't know. I think that may have been the same error in reading an archetype as God Yeah. that, that Abraham had. Right. Yeah. And then we also saw Hitler and the, and the Germans doing that to the Jews sure. in the Holocaust. The same thing. The Jews are the problem mm-hmm. that's causing all these problems. And they were 1% of Germany, but yet... They were rounded up and seen as the problem. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I, I and, my, and we see it in families. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say this is. I think this is what we're still seeing is that people, even in the quote new age mindsets, are. Well, I, I do have to tell you, I treated uh, people who were uh, children of satanic cult participants, uh-huh. and uh, one of the things that they did was they picked out a child that was going to be the the sacrificial child and that child would would get the sexual abuse the the taken to rituals and so forth while the rest of the children may could live the the good life so Mm -hmm. to speak and they would so they would uh, victimize this one child as a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. It was very purposeful. It was a purposeful use and, of a scapegoat. Right. But it and wasn't... Most of the time, it's just a, an unconscious mechanism. Well, it, I don't know. Maybe now we're, I'm seeing a positive and a negative use of, of scapegoating. Sure. Because we can have the sacrificial use of a goat who then all the sins of the people are conferred to this goat and then the, the goat is sent or killed. But the people's sense of, of freedom and it's in the name of becoming closer to God. But maybe the perverted use of that, the negative use of using scapegoat, is to pick intentionally pick an object or a people, and and dominate them, uh, completely dominate them, control them, uh, master them, and somehow karmically use that to uh, further my agenda for growing along the negative polarity. And so it's it's really not in the service of union with God, but in the service of separation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So what maybe the scapegoat mechanism can be done in a way that is appropriate developmentally for a people, but it can also be used in a, in a negative way purposefully to inflict consciously, not unconsciously, but consciously to inflict upon them negative things so that I gain in polarity, negative polarity for my own power to separate. Mm-hmm. So it's really the intention perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that what Ra says is that this problem started to happen. I don't, it's not a problem perhaps in sixth density, but it seems to be a problem for us is that you had on one level in the law of three, uh, you have an affirming force, a denying force and a reconciling force. So for those of you who are familiar with the law of three, um, and you don't have to be to understand what I'm going to say, but you have the affirming force or the, the status quo force of a human, an earth human third density population uh, that is a made up of a conglomerate, a heterogeneous uh, mixture of souls from all over. You know, a lot of people who are repeating third density and all this. And you have a conglomerate of third density souls that are don't seem to be advancing into the heart. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's they're, they're almost their quagmire, their log jam, their closed circuit of the first three chakras almost becomes crystallized. And when Ross says a crystallization, it's like a uh, the highest. It's, it approaches an archetype. You know, the crystallization is kind of an archetype. I guess an archetypal manifestation. It approaches that. It, so what I mean is like there was such a quagmire, such a logjam of the quid pro quo or the scapegoating that you're the problem. No, you're the problem. And then it became in the name of God, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you know, uh, There was such a distortion. Uh, and so it was almost being stuck into collectively um, the energetics of the lower three chakras just going back round and round and round that something had to happen in order to break open this log jam that almost became crystallized because you have, so you have the affirming force, which is the status quo moving in one direction. And then there's always a denying force. What is the denying force in this, in this scenario? The denying force is the idea that harvest, the cosmic harvest is happening. 75,000 years is up. And it's moving towards this. So what do you happen to, what do you have then with the human collective conscious who's basically an adolescent, just repeating over and over and over again and not really growing? The level of an adolescent when they should be, by rights, 75,000 years, should be ready for, um, to be an elder, you know, to be, to, to have access to the heart, to a good use of the, the Blu-ray chakra, the wisdom chakra, you should almost have an elder in the place of an adolescent if, if everything was going the way that the archetype of third densities was made, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have this affirming force of the status quo of the quagmire, logjam. Then you have the denying force of the approach of harvest, which is 75,000 years. And there's no way to reconcile these things. It's like a wall, a structure of the 75,000 years, but a population that is not ready to harvest. It's not ready. It can't handle the fourth density, love and light. Yeah, so certain 
chaos and pressure starts to build. It starts to build. And what do you do? And that's that's sort of the new age message. It is. Raw. Yeah. But and, uh, here's what I think happened maybe, and this is what I want to run, run by you, is what if the Jesus Christ event was the reconciling force in terms of the law of three? The, the reconciling force is a hidden force that allows for a, a new like a reconciling of the conflict, but it doesn't create, it's not at the same level of consciousness that creates the actual conflict. What it is, is a new order of being. The reconciling force, according to Law of Three, brings the problem into a reorder. Well, I think the um, New Agers have it right somewhat. That uh -huh. You've got to raise your vibrations, as they say. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, yeah, we, we have to start working from a higher level of consciousness. Yeah. And uh, even Einstein <laughs> addressed that issue that you don't solve problems from the same level of consciousness that your problem that, exists. At. That caused them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, go on with your... Yeah, and so I'm wondering, because Ra does say that Jesus, the entity Jesus, who was had just graduated from fourth density, and we know that fourth density is the density of love and understanding. So Jesus, the entity, was replete with this lesson. Um, and instead of going to fifth density, the entity chose to incarnate on a mission that was unique. Mm -hmm. uh, and throughout the, the Ra says that the entity Jesus learned that it was a mess that it wasn't an entity of itself, that it was a messenger. Mm -hmm. And what I'm thinking, based on our conversation here, is that, that me the messenger, that he wasn't an entity of himself, that he was to actually become the archetype mm -hmm. of the human one, the singularity, mm -hmm. uh, as, as the Aramaic, the Ihidaya, the single one, which was a, was a, was a singularity, a point, uh, an event horizon that happened where... Jesus became the human one, and I think from a metaphysical standpoint, lo was located at the very center point of the human consciousness. Because Ross says that every consciousness, like there's a center point to infinity, there's a center point to every consciousness. That consciousness comes from a center point and goes outward in, in almost a 360 degrees. That's what Ross says. So I think the human consciousness as a matrix, if you can imagine, has a center point and Jesus located the metaphysics that Jesus was called to embody in third density space time was to was to be located right at that center point to become the archetypal human mm -hmm. and then approach the embodiment of ink living like the process of mm -hmm. total self-gift total complete self-gift in the name of love and healing and reconciliation which is another name for forgiveness well, Carl Jung, uh, when I first read this, I said, no, oh, no, that can't be true, but I think he's right. Carl Jung says that that um, Jesus came for the believer as a kind of a image that we use to represent our higher self. He called it the archetypal self. Mm -hmm. So the... the archetype of our humanity for the Christian is Jesus. Yeah, the icon. The icon. There you go. That's yeah. the good word. Uh -huh. 
and um, um, yeah, but we, but whether you identify it with Jesus or not, we all still have that archetype of the higher self. Yeah, that we can call upon, and uh, Jesus sure helps me access it, though it seems like to me. Yeah. I, I think that's a good way to do it, but I think maybe metaphysically, and again, going on a limb here, but I think there was something that uniquely happened in Earth, uh, space-time, third density, with the Jesus Christ event. So it wasn't just in, uh, Jesus as being a Jungian way to represent the higher self, although I think that could be perfectly fine. I mean, I think that would works. Mm -hmm. But I think that Jesus, the entity, approached um, humanity, approached the archetype and became the archetype of the single one, which is also, and also at the same time became the archetype of the ink, the, the, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the, the, and there, there, and Ross says there's no better sacrifice right. than martyrdom right. in third density. And um, this one thing that you helped me understand and that I've, understood stood more as I lived is that there is a power in identification. Mm. What we identify with tends to control us. Because that's what's happening in the archetype, you think? Yes. Yeah. Totally. And uh, so we as Christians identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ mm -hmm. when we are baptized. And if we do that in our minds and, and say, oh, that's me, I died. Oh, that's me, I rose again. Uh, and if we we really live that, it sort of like activates that archetype within us and we live from it more and more and it, and it provides a, an energy and an impetus and it yeah. calls down the Holy Spirit and does all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. But, you, but to activate that, we have to identify with it. That's right. Say that's me. That's me. That's you know. Say again. And Jesus identified with the logos. Yeah. When he said, "I and the Father are one." Yeah. Got him in a lot of trouble too. But <sighs> that's that, why he was killed. <laughs> yes. But so there was a sense that through Jesus's martyrdom, he became the ink on this side of third density, mm -hmm. and then uh, there was a way in which the logos it seemed itself created, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but uh, approached their density from, let's say, I don't know, I'm just going to make this up, eighth density or seventh density. The power of eighth density, the next octave, comes into Earth's third density time space. So it becomes a, a, a particleized thing in time space, but it can't be manifested into space time unless we have somebody here on this side in space time, third density. Who invites it into the heart. To invites it into the human collective consciousness. And identifies with it. Yeah, so perfectly mm -hmm. that becomes it in this great act of oneing. Mm -hmm. And there, I think, was a turnkey that was the reconciling force of the affirming force, which remember the affirming force was the, the gridlock logjam of, of a human quid pro quo mentality, tit for tat, eye for an eye, truth for truth, the revenge scapegoating mentality warfare mentality. So it comes in and then there's the denying force of harvestability is coming up cosmically. Something's got to switch. Then there was this reconciling force, the Jesus Christ event that happens at the collective consciousness that creates a new opening, a new archetype to tap into that's ground. It's the archetype of the ink 
which is envisioned in the icon of the cross, but the power of it, as you say, every archetype wants to be expressed. Well, imagine having an archetype of a cosmic significance wanting to be expressed, and Ross is the only power that can stop the inertia. And that's what we have. The inertia was so strong. It was moving towards the, the one direction of um, living out bellicosity. The only way to stop that is unconditional forgiveness. So the Jesus Christ event creates in space-time an archetype uh, that we can now tap into. If you're following, and I don't think it has to be just Christians, I think it just exists in the human consciousness, that forgiveness, mm -hmm. the ability to forgive in the way, the way, W, capital W, A, -W -A Y, the, uh, of, of Christ is, to, is, is a sense of forgiving, and, and actually not only that, but solidarity. I'm yeah, going to help I mean, carry your burden. I think Raw hints that the second coming of Christ is the coming of really a Christ consciousness mm -hmm. to, to uh, the human experience. Yeah. And uh, it seems like we seem like we're a long ways from it still, but but apparently that's what the new age is about, is, yeah. is, is this coming of Christ consciousness. And I think what, what that coming of Christ consciousness, not only is it the dawning of fourth density, um, which is the heart chakra of the logos, you know, as we're moving into that, but it's also the sense that human consciousness on a third density space-time level, this bandwidth of consciousness that we enjoy, are able to access the heart. Because Christ consciousness is this sense of seeing holistically. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that Jesus, the archetype of the Jesus Christ archetype that was downloaded and installed into third density, <laughs> that's kind of how I see it, then became its own potential. Remember, wave, wave, it became its own wave, uh, a potentiality. It's an archetype, it's a wave in a sense, it's, it's its own particle, it's its own thing. But it's a wave in which you can tap into, tap into in space-time and then create and bring into incarnation Jesus' spirit, the, the Christian spirit of love and forgiveness and carrying one someone else's burdens for them. You know, forgiving people, even if they don't know they're being forgiven. Mm -hmm. There's a way in which we can pray for people and that, that uh, relieves them some level of, I think, karma. Uh, their own karma, and they'll probably still have enough that they can learn on, but it might be like lessening the load a lot. Mm -hmm. That's just sort of how I think about it. I'm not sure. What are your thoughts on that? Um, carrying one another's burdens is a big part of Christianity. And, uh, so I think something like that happens, and, and how it happens metaphysically I don't know, but, uh, yeah. but I think it's there. <laughs> cool. Well, um, <clears throat> this has been a really fruitful conversation for me. Thank you. It's been beautiful. Thank you, Doug. And I hope this goes out like bread on the water. Well, we're creating an archetype, aren't we? Now? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I wouldn't give no. myself that much credit, but, but at least we're noticing a few things. <laughs> well, you are Mr. T. <laughs> Mr. Troy. <laughs> Um, anyways, to whatever degree this helps anybody out there or affirms your path or uh, inspires you or challenges you, 
Um, and even if you disagree with us or me, which is perfectly okay, um, at least engaging with the material helps um, you on your own path, and that's all we can ask for. Um, so I'm going to say a, a closing benediction, if that's okay. Yes. Loving, infinite creator, who forever transcends, forever incarnates, and forever indwells. We love this nature of love. We're so grateful for the ability to be incarnate here, to engage with each other, because it is you in and through and as us, engaging others and delighting in the connections that are happening. And we ask that you bless us. We tap into the beautiful archetypes of that exist in the metaphysics of love, forgiveness, and solidarity, and true holistic understanding and seeing. It's open-hearted green ray energy and blue ray. And we ask that you bless this world, bless us, and help us to be instruments of your love and light and joy and peace in the world. Amen. Amen. Yeah. All right.